You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the pleasure of talking with the talented and celebrated wine pro, the chief of wine happiness, Natalie McLean. Natalie is an award-winning author, the host of the podcast, Unreserved Wine Talk, and hosts an online wine and food pairing video class as well. Now she shared with us her journey with wine, some great tips on how to enjoy it, and many of her world travels. Natalie is a bold woman and an inspiration to us all. So fill your glass with some amazing bubbles, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Natalie, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are really excited to have you on our show today. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Bridget, Julie. I I wish we were in person, but that will come soon. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, it will. It will. Can you tell our listeners, you know, how did you get your start? Where are you from? And um, tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Um, Well, I think like a lot of people, I didn't plan a career in wine. It wasn't something that when we went around the classroom at seven, astronaut, doctor, oh, I'm going to write about wine. So I pursued a career in um, marketing and public relations first. I did an MBA. Um, I was raised by a single mother who told me the uh, importance about being financially independent as a woman. And then I got into high tech. Um, So I worked for, I was based in Canada, which is where I'm from, but I worked for a supercomputer company in Mountain View, California, that's now the headquarters of Google. And I absolutely loved that. It was a very exciting time. The internet was breaking out. I actually did panel discussions about the power of the internet. You know, back in the Paleolithic age, that was a headline. But then I, uh, I had a boy. Um, I was married. I met my husband at uh, MBA school and we had our son and I went off on maternity leave. Being a type A, I had taken no vacation. And so I wanted to keep my brain alive. And I, I just before maternity leave, I had taken a sommelier course just for fun no aspirations to write about it. But I thought, hey, I'll pitch a local magazine on wine on the internet. And they went for it. And that became a regular column. And so that by the time my maternity leave was over, I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay home with my son. But also, I love this whole world of wine and writing. That is such a wonderful story. Um, and, And this was all in Canada during, as you started writing about wine, you know, I, I do want to let our listeners know in full disclosure, I found you on the internet and I was like, oh, that's Natalie McLean. And I, my first wine book, when I started kind of exploring wine as a profession was Red, White and Drunk All Over. Yay. Yay. Thank you, got you got Julie. right there. <laughs> Just happened and, to. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a great first book because we Thank all you. know how complicated wine is and how some might say it could be a little pretentious or, you know, they use a lot. It's got like its own vocabulary. And I really appreciated your book because I was such a new 
you know, a, a new person kind of getting into wine. This is even before I got a job in wine. I think I was like just serving and just really starting to discover wine. And I just loved how it was just very light and fun. And, you know, I'll never forget how you were kind of showing up at different chateaus and <laughs> sipping and you're like, I think I'm drunk, but I'm going to keep doing this. You know, I mean, that's just kind of what I remember from it. Um, that's a good so, takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> you know. and, and I also, Julie, tried to do a day in the life of. Um, yeah. So I became, as, as you might recall, a sommelier for a night at a mm-hmm. fancy five-star restaurant to really dig into what is good restaurant service. And, and what should we expect as a consumer? And then I worked at a wine store, actually two wine stores, one in New York and one in San Francisco to, to look at strategies for buying wine um, because I was bringing kind of my MBA background to it. But I, I love the whole day in the life of aspect. And I think that's how we learn through storytelling, whether it's at the Chateau having one too many mm-hmm. sips or, you know, doing these various experiences. And I, I think that's what I've tried to do in both of my books that I hope resonates not just with beginners, but those in the trade who are, you know, have years of experience still, I think, love the stories behind the scenes. I couldn't agree with you most. You know, something that I always say is you either love have the hospitality industry or you don't. There's no gray area. And the customer doesn't always understand what goes on behind the scenes and all the effort and the care and the thoughtfulness that it takes to put on that experience, right? For the guests yes. and to make it extra special. So I'd love to hear you know, your thoughts on hospitality and especially um, what has changed as we are still living through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So much has changed. Um... You know, the the way we look at wine, the way we learn about wine, um, the way we buy wine, whether that's, you know, online. I know buying online, buying wine online has always been available to us. But I think uh, now more than ever, consumers have embraced it and and discovered it's not so difficult to do that. At the same time, I think consumers are learning a lot more about wine, have become more educated about wine. I teach online wine and food pairing classes and I know the influx of people who have taken my courses because they, they needed to find something to do with all that time, but they had to get over that mental hurdle of how do you learn about something that's so sensory online? What are you going to do? Text me the bottles, but you can get around it. And there's so many advantages to, to learning about wine and food pairing online. Uh, we can dive into that more deeply, but in terms of what's changed, um, I think also for the trade, I mean, I'm in touch with a lot of sommeliers and, uh, you know, staff at restaurants. Of course, it's been a very, very difficult time for them. And they too um, are looking to sharpen their skills, be ready. Hopefully now we're heading back into some resemblance of normalcy. I don't know. But, you know, even restaurant lists have changed. You know, restaurants had to sell off their inventories to just stay afloat. Um, so wine lists are changing, restaurant service is changing, consumers are changing. So all of this is coming together to create, I think, a new um, environment for wine professionals and wine consumers. Yes, it it definitely has changed. And I think one thing that it really has um, done the pandemic is really bring out that creativeness that it is a part of so many of us in this industry and and another a different way to connect. I mean, that's how we kind of came up with served up is how do we connect when we're virtual but still make it engaging. Um, so you know, tell us a little bit about your online platform and and being that you had experience in tech, did that help you kind of dive into um, the industry this way? 
It did. It certainly did. So I started my website in 2000, again, back in the Jurassic era, <laughs> when, uh, when a lot of wineries and agents and, and so on did not have websites. So I got in there early and then I had mobile apps a few years later. I still do. I still have mobile apps for your smart, your iPhone or your Android. And they, you know, scan barcodes as well as front optical uh, label readers to instantly access uh, my reviews and the reviews of Psalms and other trade staff who contribute reviews to my site. So it's quite a powerful tool. But, you know, the high tech background was extremely useful. And, you know, in, in some senses, I felt like, OK, I'm coming from high tech. It's like if I were to compare it to books, it's like Brave New World and the the motto is fail forward fast, try it, break it, move on, learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now I'm going into this wine world where it's so tradition bound and seemingly moves very slow when it comes to technology. It's like, don't break it, don't touch it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so where can I find the intersection of those two worlds? And I think high tech is a perfect complement to wine, because as you know, wine is is so vast. I mean, you can dive head head first. I'm sure you've heard it before. You could do, you could structure a, a, a liberal arts degree around wine. I mean, history, geography, commerce, business, and so on. It's got this vast amount of information, which makes it both fascinating and overwhelming to some people. But that's where tech can come in with the right tools, I think, like mobile apps, well-designed websites, and other tools, like I have a food and wine matching tool on my site that you can start with the food, start with the wine, and, and then get answers to wines that are in stores right now and where they are, which stores have them. Um, so a good use, a smart use of technology, I think, can really help wine lovers and, as well as the trade. Not that long ago, there were really like two categories of wine, right? You had like old world or you had new world. <laughs> and now there's so many different categories, right? So as a consumer, even as a wine expert, it can become very complicated because it's not possible to know every single brand and mm -hmm. all of their stories. And also during the time that we're living in now, I think that the consumer is super self-conscious and very, very conscious about where they're putting their dollar, right? Including yes. the bars and restaurants and being very thoughtful and not just um, going after the big, the big brands for the name, but really that heartfelt story. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how messaging is so important when we're talking about wine and really truly telling their stories? Absolutely. So I find so many parallels between books and bottles. I often pair them on uh, the television shows where I'm a guest because we're getting back to the long tail, um, kind of a high techie term, but you know, the, the sort of the search for the artisanal, for the, the story behind the bottle or the book uh, between more int for, and communicating that message more intimately, whether it's through podcasts or small group tastings on Zoom, or I hope meeting in person in small groups. So it's, it's, I think we've moved beyond blasting everybody with a message about a big, huge brand. No one wants that impersonal aspect anymore. Everyone wants to say, Hey, I, I resonate with that story. You know, I, I look at, you know, some brands uh, and it's almost, I remember them because of the story behind the wine. And uh, it's almost, it, it's as important for me as the wine itself. The wine itself, of course, has to be good, but I think. Every bottle has a story. Every book has a story. And it's something that when we share wine with friends and family, 
of course, we're sharing the taste, the sensuality, and that sort of thing. But if you can package that up with, did you know this winemaker came to America with $5 in her pocket and now she's running this empire? Um, something like that, something that resonates. Because, you know, I'm writing a memoir now and we, we read books to find ourselves in books. Um, we don't read to say, okay, what happened to you? We, we, we read a book that's about losing and finding love again, because we think what's, what's part of me that's in that book. And so I think what's part of me that's in that wine, you know, okay. So you found this bottle on a trip to Italy where it has this remarkable story of the winemaker. How does that tie into my story? Oh yeah. My parents came from Italy or I know a woman who struggled and, and professionally rose through the ranks. So I think that's, that's what's happening now with the wines and the books that we seek out. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that relatability is, is really what people look for, that meaningful way that we can relate. And, you know, a thing that we used to always do when I had the privilege of selling, you know, vintage Italian wines at one point is we'd always look at the year and say, okay, what were we all doing during this time? And then we talk about the harvest of that particular area in that year. Was there a lot of rain? Was it super hot? And then we kind of compare it. And, you know, you could just go on and on and, and have a deep conversation about that. So that is so Absolutely. beautiful. And Julie, that's why I think one of my favorite scenes in that movie, Sideways, is when Maya talks to Miles, who doesn't like Merlot, but let's not go there. Um, and she talks to her, him about the vintage of the wine they're discussing. And she says, think about all the people who contributed to this wine. Think of the ones who have died since and what was going on and how many hands have passed through like to create this wine. You know, even think about Victory Vintage, 1945, the end of the war. How many people were out there, perhaps in European fields, harvesting the grapes even as they, as they were being bombed? Like, you know, it's just so poignant that to go back in time and think, what were they doing? And as you said, Julie, what was I doing to make that connection? hundred percent, you know, something that really happened during COVID and I keep going back to that because we're still living in this weird time was really at home entertaining the consumer really trying to bring that restaurant bar experience back into their homes. I know what happened. I'm really on the cocktail side. So I am learning a lot from you today as well. But I know that, um, you know, folks want to recreate those beautiful experience with their friends and family. Can you talk to us about that? Just kind of the at-home experience when you're enjoying wine? Sure. Um, I think people did find a, a huge desire to elevate their home dining experience because we, we couldn't go to restaurants and we're at a loss for that sort of hospitality feeling of, of, of being in a restaurant. So what can we do at home? And I think that is a reason why a lot of um, consumers and the trade, actually lots of Psalms, took my courses and continue to because they're looking for those special touches that can make an at-home meal with wine special. So it, of course, involves food and wine pairing, but for a whole range of dishes, like if it's spicy or whatever, uh, whatever dishes they want, you know, I don't want a, just a generic recommendation. Tell me why this works with this dish and this flavor so that I can have, you know, that, that, experience when the, the wine and the food come together and create this sort of flavor cloud in your mouth that's beyond what you could have with just the wine alone or just the food alone. And that's that sort of sensory experience is, is what they were searching for. But also, you know, the, the nicer details that make 
life worth living. I mean, you know, whether it's the right glassware, the temperature, that sort of thing. And, you know, part of me used to think, well, you know, first world problem. But, you know, when we're all working so hard, when we're struggling, when we're stressed, what are the things that make life enjoyable? What are the counterpoints that say, hey, restore yourself? You used to do that in restaurants. And of course, the root of the word restaurant is to restore. Now you need to do it at home. So how can you do that? And so I think that combination of all of the finer points and, and the food and wine pairing, the, the, uh, the stuffiness, but just to bathe your senses in something that is absolutely delightful and gives you a mind and body break from the chaos of the world. You bring back so many memories because I, you know, I started my career really working with a lot of the sommeliers and I tell everybody that I learned about wine through the sommeliers because, you know, I, I had big shoes to fill. I jumped in a role where I was selling fine Italian wine, knew nothing. And I just learned by tasting my psalms and hearing what they had to say. But I remember some moments where we would meet at their, their a very, very nice, one of the top Italian restaurants in, in Miami. And we'd meet at their warehouse and that's where I would be able to taste him on wine. George Hawk, if you're listening, um, was one of my idolized sommeliers because he was just so casual about it. And we would sit down and I'd be like showing him a couple of wines and he'd be like, I've got something, you know, and like a, whatever, a vintage Barolo or something. We'd be sitting there on boxes in the warehouse tasting and you're like in another world. I mean, I could have been in Italy right at that moment in a winery. And I think that that's what makes it so magical, especially when you're exploring wine for yourself and really understanding your senses and, and learning or have something that you had already learned from that wine or enjoying it with an expert like you know, in, on your platform where, like you said, it's, you might not think you can do virtual tastings, but if you're both tasting a similar thing and having that discussion, that's really when that magic happens. Right. And, and absolutely. And that connection, that communion, if you will, I mean, wine is so powerful. There's a reason why I focus just on wine and not beer, whiskey, spirits, no dissing to the other groups of alcohol, but, uh, I just find it a slow sensory experience. And of course, we know that smell ties directly to memory in the brain and memories are laid down with emotion. It's the, the best and the worst things that have ever happened to us that we remember the most, the, the clearest. And so with wine, you're having this emotional experience that is really laying down that memory. So so Julie, when you say you could, you could have been transported to a, an Italian winery, well, that's exactly what the smell can do for you, a la Proust's Madeleine. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful. And then online, when you're sharing those experiences with others from around the world, and you're all feeling like, wow, this, you know, and you're sharing the, the emotions, because I think descriptions of wine are, are an attempt at expressing emotion, really, or should be. Um, that's, that's, again, when you feel that connection with others through the wine. I love that so much oh, <laughs> because, you, you know, because well, just like spirits, I mean, it is a communal, you know, uh, um, it's supposed to be a communal emotional pull experience or when you're sitting around the table, having those conversations, making those memories. Absolutely. And wine is a category, I have to say, that can be intimidating to a lot of folks because there are so many brands, there are so many beautiful labels, you know, that if you really don't know where to start, where do you start? <laughs> With my, my question course. to you. <laughs> um, I think you, you do find a trusted guide, whether that's a good friend who knows a lot about wine, or it could be uh, an online 
expert or course um, like mine. Uh, but I think, you know, for the, the way I approach it with uh, those who are really getting into wine is start with the food first, because I think food is so much less intimidating than wine. So, you know, those roast chickens don't have a vintage chart. And, you know, you, most people don't get overwhelmed by cantaloupes. But so if you can start with the dish, leave with the dish and then go in to wine through that, like what would a recipe involving these ingredients, what would that bring forward in a wine? So let's experiment. And that's what we do in the classes. It's like, okay, let's take this dish and let's try three or four different wines. And why do they work? Let's dig down and find out what are the flavor elements and ingredients that are working here. Even as simple as lemon versus salt. You know, if, you, if you've ever done that experiment of, you know, you, you taste the wine, you take a lick of salt, and then you go back to the wine, you'll taste profound differences. It's your perception, of course, that's changed, not the wine, but in the fruitiness, the sweetness of the wine, and so on. And when you start playing with elements like that between food and wine, I think it just opens up a world that's joyous, not overwhelming, understandable, and accessible. Absolutely. And, and a lot of that, I think that intimidation of wine that, you know, Bridget brings up is because we think that there's a right and wrong, or, you know, you don't want to say the wrong thing or, or describe the wrong flavor. And, and it's really about what you taste and what you explore. And I love doing that. I always tell people when I drink wine or when I taste wine, I have at least three glasses or right. even You're two. You're my kind of woman. Yeah. <laughs> at least two, because I'm not going to really understand the full flavor profile of this wine unless I have this one to counteract it. Now I realize this has more raspberry. This one has more earth, you know, and, and then you have something to compare. Um, you know, I think that's such a great tip is start with the food and then try the different wines and see the different flavor profiles. One thing that I used to do with Italian wine especially, you know, up against so many big, flavorful American Napa, California wines. And I'm going in there with an Italian wine that's like super bitter, super pucker, you know, lots of acidity. And first thing in the morning when somebody's tasting, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, what is this? So I used to bring a chunk of like Parmigiano Reggiano with me and just be like, here, take a piece of cheese first, then drink it, you know, and they'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing because it's yes. meant to go with food. So, exactly. you know, you offer a website that anybody from the novice to the expert can go on, engage, learn, um, experience, and you've really leaned into wine and food pairing. So as we come up on the holidays, we're so happy that, you know, summer's over. What do you suggest for somebody that, you know, is going to have a small group over and family gathering and they really want to make their special, you know, maybe their Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's Eve dinner as a wine pairing? Is that impossible to do or is there an easy way to do that? Never impossible. We're all here to help, aren't we, ladies? <laughs> so you, I, I treat Thanksgiving in particular or um, the Christmas turkey dinner as um, I would all the side dishes. So I treat wine like another side dish. And why not have several? Of course, it depends on how many you've got gathered around the table. But, you know, just as we have cranberry sauce and cream corn and mashed potatoes and, and the big bird, why not have a Pinot Noir and a Riesling and a Sauvignon Blanc and a, a variety and let people experiment just as you did, Julie? 
I think that's a wonderful way to sort of de-risk the whole thing as the host, but also as the guests. Just try a little bit each time and until you find something that you like, a match, and maybe you're just going to double down on just the cranberry sauce and the Pinot Noir, <laughs> if that's what works for you. Again, what we do in the classes, but, and even for, you know, the trade and sommeliers, um, you know, a lot of the certifications that they take don't really dig down into food and wine pairing as much as they'd like, or I'd like. And so that is again, why that's my focus. And so for Thanksgiving, I mean, it's such a fun, I think it's the least difficult dinner, even though it sounds like it's the most difficult, it's the least difficult dinner because just have three or four different wines. You can use preserve spray or whatever, if you, you don't finish them all, never a problem at our house and, and just have fun, play with it. It's, it's that playfulness that we had as children, not with wine, of course, but that we need as adults, it's it's not to something to get uptight about. I forget who said it, but pair the wine to the diner, not the dinner. If it doesn't work out, have a bun in between bites. Oh my gosh, what a great quote. That is awesome. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bridget. <laughs> uh, has there been any really kind of a shocking pairing that you have experienced as an expert in this field? Like something like, holy cow, I never thought to pair these two things together when it comes to wine and food. Yes, through my vast amount of research, because I am thorough for my my readers and listeners, uh, Cool Ranch Doritos and Zinfandel. Brilliant, really brilliant. <laughs> so you've got the spicy cheesiness. It's like having nachos, I guess. Perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising. And then this juicy red wine that doesn't have a lot of tannin. And uh, it's got the full-bodied heft, because we're always looking at three aspects, right? Flavor, weight, and texture. But those two just are marriage made in heaven. And then I also like Twizzlers uh, red licorice with framboise, a raspberry dessert wine. <laughs> Not everything I eat is junk food, but I just love having fun with the shabby chic, high, low kind of rhinestones on jeans, kind of champagne, popcorn, potato chips you've probably heard of. Those, those kind of combos that I find work. But again, the research is vast. It's only, I'm only at the beginning, but I'm willing to go there with even more in the future. I'm <laughs> so glad that you went there because a lot of times wine can be intimidating, like I said, or perceived as stuffy, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, look, bite both ends of a Twizzler and stick it in your wine. See what happens. Use it as a straw, right? <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. I don't want to go there, but I'm just saying like, you're making it so approachable. Yes. It can be approachable yes. and it should be approachable and not so intimidating. So thank you for sharing those pairings. It's oh, that's my really pleasure. fun. And, you know, approachable doesn't have to mean dumbed down. You don't have to speak down. I mean, a lot of most of the consumers, readers, listeners I have, they're very educated. They may not want to spend as much time learn, like going down a tasting note as, as we might in the industry, but making it accessible doesn't mean, as I say, dumbing it down. It just means thinking carefully about how you're positioning the wine, the pairing, being compact, not being too wordy, getting right to the point for them, but still having a sense of humor. Like humor is so, so important in wine. I think we, we never, we're most receptive about learning anything, wine, anything. The moment after we finish laughing, our senses, over, we relax, our, you know, we're listening we're leaning forward, we're having fun. That's when the, we can't learn in a fear kind of crouchy position. So humor for me is condensed intellect. You have to make that jump together. The, ah, I get what you mean together. And it just opens up everybody and relaxes everybody. So I, I also think that's part of making wine accessible is humor. I agree. And I just, I, I commend so many leaders in the industry like yourself and many of them women 
you know, coming into the wine industry where I feel in my experience have those barriers have come down because of that relatability with wine, you know, and, and being able to be exposed through Southern with a lot of our, our master sommeliers that are women that, you know, work with us and you hang out with them and it's so down to earth and it's really just about the wine. And, and then you've got, you know, just, um, and it doesn't have to just be about the expensive wine. It's really understanding what that wine is and, and what that's giving. Tell us a little bit about your website and how people get involved. I mean, because I know you've got, I mean, God, like over 300,000. How many members do you have? You have a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of thirsty people out there. So I have uh, 302,000 uh, <laughs> subscribers to my free newsletter. And um, there are over 300,000 wine reviews. So that's not just me or I'd be... <laughs> dead um, or my liver would be shot at least. But I have, as I say, the, the wine community contributes reviews. So sommeliers, those in the trade, um, and they're terrific. I love it. Um, so there's a lot of reviews, a lot of pairings, a lot of tools like the mobile apps are also free. Um, the matcher tool that I mentioned, there's a whole lot of recipes on there with wines paired as well, but it's all at nataliemcclain.com. It's just my name to find it. And of course the podcast, Unreserved Wine Talk. Yeah. So the podcast came later, right? Um, from the website. So what made you want to get into podcasting? Well, I find um, podcasting is such an intimate medium. I mean, most people will hear this conversation and not see it at least first. And, you know, you're millimeters away from somebody's brain. That's a very intimate place to be as you tell stories. And I think, well, at least for me, it, it takes me back to when I was a child and my mother would read bedtime stories to me and I'm dozing off. Podcast feels almost like that. Like I, I just, there's something comforting about it. And there's something that evokes the theater of the mind. Again, you have to co-create it with your host you have to envision what they're talking about most of the time. Even if you're watching this as a video, we're not showing things other than our three talking heads. So there's a creativity element that um, is there uh, that's, again, like reading books. I find wine and books are so similar. But so I was drawn to it for those reasons. And because I tend to listen to books rather than read the physical artifacts. And I think the voice is so powerful. It has, it can convey so much emotion. Uh, that it can bring to life uh, a lot of things that just the written word can't. It can add that extra element of richness. What a great segue. Can you tell us about your book as well? Uh, we would love to know what inspired you to write it. You know, Red, White, and Drunk All Over, A Wine-Soaked Journey from the Grape to the Glass and Unquenchable. So yes, we would love <laughs> to hear about your books and um, that journey for you and how that came to be. Thanks, Bridget. So I've been writing for magazines when I started out, as I mentioned, and then I started entering some writing competitions and, and that worked out. And so I got an email from an editor at Penguin, one of the larger publishing houses saying, hey, have you ever considered writing a book? And I thought, nope, but that sounds interesting. And so, but then when I asked my magazine editors for advice, they said, get an agent, go the route that is a little bit more methodical. And so I did. And I ended up publishing with Random House, uh, which is another. Now they're merged, actually. It's Penguin Random House. So it's all one big happy family again. But I started out with uh, Red, White and Drunk All Over. And it was just sort of adventures. Again, my inspiration was Kermit Lynch, Adventures Along the Wine Route. Love him. Storyteller to the nth degree. I think a lot of people in the trade think of that book as their seminal book as well. Um, so just tried to do day in the life of stories so that you could learn about wine. 
I say my mother always hid the peas and the mashed potatoes. So I got my vegetables in without sort of realizing it. So the education is hidden in the stories. Um, and then Unquenchable was a continuation of that. So I just went to more countries, uh, did more crazy things like go shark diving and um, then talk about seafood and wine pairing. No sharks were harmed, um, but milk goats and cheese and wine pairing and do all sorts of things around the world. But again, it just for me, instead of just um, observing from afar, Diving down and doing something with a winemaker, usually it was a winemaker, revealed more insights. So we both sort of, as the day would go on, whatever the adventure was, or weeks, whatever the length of time was, we both forgot our roles in a good way. And we had more, you know, direct, open conversation. And, and that's where the insights came from. So that's kind of the story behind those two books. That's amazing. Yeah. I think you need to pause right here and tell us about shark diving. You just glazed <laughs> right over that. Like, did you drink wine and then went shark diving? Did you? I felt, I felt like, like I needed a how drink. How much wine did you drink after you went shark diving? <laughs> Where was that at? So this was off the coast of South Africa. And <laughs> so there was a winemaker who regularly led uh, these sort of shark diving expeditions. And I thought, there's a good subject for a book. And it wasn't until I got into the water that I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but you are in cages. So thank God. But what happens is they chum the water. So they're, they're spreading shark food. I think it's fish guts or something. And these giant, giant, great white sharks. I mean, they're as long as an 18 wheeler and they come up right next to your cage and you can see their eye not blinking. They try to start chomping at the bars. So you keep your fingers in, um, but <laughs> they chum the water right around your cage and uh, it's, it's exhilarating and thrilling. And then you go, why am I doing this? But then I knew what I was doing uh, or why I did it afterwards. So the story, so that, that adrenaline rush. And then we went back to land and thought, I, I thought I never doing that again, but it was very exciting. <laughs> so Again, it was a day in the boat with the winemaker. We were able to talk about all sorts of things, South African wines, seafood and wine pairing. I think it's only going through that, again, that emotional rush that opened us up for a better conversation that made me never forget the experience or the wines that we tasted. Wine is so nostalgic, right? So when you can have that moment then the wine or the wine and then the moment you'll, you'll remember it forever. Yes. And, um, you know, and I know we're, we've been bouncing around because it's just also fascinating, but you know, you did bring up, um, that you had a son and that you were raised with the single mother and something that we really like to bring up and, and bring awareness to is, you know, being a woman in this industry and, and being a mom and, and managing all of that. So, you know, could you share with us, you know, some, what that was like, you know, I mean, did your son come with you when you traveled the world and go to different places and what were the highlights and what were some of the challenges? Um, so I was buried for 20 years, um, before that, uh, crumbled. Uh, that's part of my memoir, which is my third book. But, um, so, and when I was young, my son stayed, or when I was young, when he was young, um, he stayed home with his father, uh, because he was just too small to go off to Australia and South Africa and so on. But in later years, he came with me to vineyards and we try to plan visits like to vineyards that had, you know, at least a, a that, that were child friendly, had a grassy field or something where he and his dad could play ball or, or do whatever. 
And <laughs> I used to call dining out our family sport. So you would never catch our family on the cover of an LL Bean magazine, but we did dine out. We love dining out because that was the time when we all connected in restaurants and we talked about everything. And he, he was, we took him with us when he was very young, it made it a regular thing. So he was used to it. And he, <laughs> I remember he would order things and he, he got to know different chefs at different local restaurants. And, you know, one time he got this fish dish that had some sort of cream sauce and he goes, Oh, sauce. I don't want this. And I said, well, the chef is just trying to be creative, honey. So the next time he ordered, cause he did his own ordering with the, uh, the server, he'd said, I want the fish dish kind of mushy, but the chef does not need to be creative. No sauces. <laughs> so, um, but we love that. So, you know, in terms of having a young son, it was always a balancing act like any career. And, you know, I, I allowed, I never made wine taboo, uh, but I did deliberately not give him a sweet wine to taste for the first time. I gave him a very bold Shiraz and he thought it was yucky. And, um, but I, I think some of my um, most poignant memories with my son have always taken place in liquor stores. It's very bizarre, but I suppose if I'd been a carpenter, we would have had our talks in the woodshed or something. But, you know, I remember when he was four and we're walking down the liquor aisle and he says, mommy, why do we always have to go to the booze store? And I'm thinking they're going to call child services, <laughs> but he grew up around wine. So it's always been part of his life. Although he doesn't drink it yet. He's, he's uh, just turned 22 and he's not a wine drinker yet. I think there's still hope, but I respect his choices too. It does come a little bit later. I mean, you know, my son is 10 and I know, you know, Bridget's daughter's grown up in the industry and, and a lot of us can relate. It's, you know, it's not us changing our life because we have a child. It's that child adapting to our life and our lifestyle. And, and I could relate with the dining out. That's our biggest hobby. You know, like we go out to eat all the time and, and he's becoming more and more savvy and appropriate. And I'm like, one day you'll be able to go to all my work dinners with me. You know, you'll be my plus one. Um, because my husband gave that up years ago. He's like, no, you go by yourself. So that's wonderful <laughs> to hear that and get a glimpse um, into, you know, what that, what that was like as, um, you know, being in this industry and as a mom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this industry can be very aggressive and it asks so much from you. You know, um, if you allow it to just take and take and take, my daughter is about to turn 18. You know, we're planning for college. I'm on the spirit side of the industry, again, not making that taboo. So hopefully when she goes off to college, she's just not going to ragers every night because right. she hasn't been around it. And I can relate to you so much, you know, when you have that, that little babe and the like, mom, why are we going to the booze store again? For my daughter corrected her teacher on a spelling test on how to correctly spell absolute. <laughs> That's great. I love it. The vodka. Yeah. Yes. So been there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how are, how are you finding some balance then, you know, in, within the industry with a career that is so high powered in an industry that is so very aggressive, you know, how are you keeping your sanity? <laughs> uh, well, um, a little bit at a time, it's, it's always, you know, one day at a time. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's a variety of things that we have to do as women, I think, because we want to, I mean, I, this is generalizing, of course, but um, I do think that a lot of women are prone to be pleasers, people pleasers, uh, to take care of everyone first um, and themselves last. And so there is just being aware of that and cultivating things you can do that sort of help you step back and slow down, that you aren't grabbing for a glass of wine as a way of coming off a frenzied day. 
that you're choosing that glass of wine to enjoy in a sensory way that you're not grabbing it as a, as a narcotic to like say, oh my God, no one's rewarding mommy. So mommy's going to help herself. It's meditation, it's exercise, it's getting out forest bathing, going for walks. Um, It's also asking myself if I'm going for a glass of wine for what I call the wrong reason. It's what's the thought before the thought I need a drink? Because that's usually there's something hurting there. There's a tiredness or there's an anger or there's a resentment. And that's the thing I need to try to deal with. Maybe not in the moment, but not with wine. And so I want to choose wine. I don't wine. I don't want wine to choose me, so to speak, even though some wines have definitely chosen me. Um, and so that is that is actually part of what I'm talking about in my memoir, because um, my first two books, as we discussed, are wine books. They're wine adventure stories. But this one is a memoir about being a woman in the wine industry. It's a behind the scenes of, well, the wine writing industry for me, because I haven't worked for a winery or an agency but it's looking at those things and looking at how wine is marketed to women, how we buy and consume wine differently from men. And yet we are, as you know, the largest uh, consumers of wine. So it's all of those issues. I, I'm rambling a little bit, but your, your question, Bridget, led me right into that. <laughs> I can't wait to read that. I mean, I think that's such a great progression for you, you know, have been writing about wine for over 20 years, starting with Red, White and Drunk Oliver. And as I mentioned early when we started is I really enjoyed that book because it was very light. It was funny. And I'm so, and you know, and, and you bring up stuff and again, I've read it 20 years ago, you know, but um I didn't realize because I know who Kermit Lynch is now. I didn't know Kermit Lynch when I first read it because I was greener than green. Mm -hmm. And I love that you just shared that there's little nuggets of education because what I took away at the time was this is a fun book. I think my husband, boyfriend at the time read it right after me. So I actually want to go back and reread it. Um, And then I haven't read your second and I'm so excited for your memoir, but I kind of feel like it takes you through your phases of being in this industry. And I love that the last one just kind of wraps it all around kind of a a woman's experience. And being that we are the largest consumers in the wine industry and of wine, the fact that so many of the premium wines are geared towards men. Yes. You know, and like there is still as much as our industry is progressing. And I know behind many other industries, but we are progressing where I personally feel that it's a lot slower is, is in the wine side um, mm-hmm. with with everything. And it's still, um, you know, I, I would go to some of these collector meetings and stuff because I would sell really nice Italian wine with the collectors. And it was just, you know, a group of men. And I'm, you know, there might be two of us that are like tasting the wines and stuff. And it was always a lovely experience. I mean, we were all there for the wine, but it was very rare to see like women wine collectors. And, you know, um, and I think how does that change? Yeah. Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, I interviewed on my podcast recently, Felicity Carter, formerly Menninger Menningers over in Germany, a big wine trade magazine. And now she's gone to a startup in California. And she has some wonderful insights about women. We talked about it. She said, look at Hong Kong. There are two leading women there. Uh, Probably mess up their names. I I know who they are, but Deborah Meberg and Jeannie Lee Cho or Cho Lee. And they're both, I think they're both masters of wine and they are leaders in industry education or consumer education, I think. 
And there's a whole connoisseur class of women in Hong Kong that buy expensive wines and so on. She said, you know, it, it's when the culture and the education starts addressing women as intelligent consumers who would be interested in expensive wines that you get that change rather than always treating women as cash cows <laughs> who just want a pink label. Prosecco or pink or yes, light exactly. and sweet. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with, uh, with fun labels, but if that's all women are, that's the problem. It's we are a range of tastes, budgets, desires, hopes, dreams. We're people, we're multitudes. And so I think marketing should talk to us like that. And marketing, you know, from wineries or agencies will benefit because, uh, yes, we do want to buy the expensive wines. Just give us a chance. <laughs> So how do we, how do we do that, Natalie? You know, how, I know I see it on the spirit side is definitely, you know, uh, progressing to make some changes within their marketing strategies across the board, especially when it comes to like bourbon, let's say, which is such a manly drink, you know, and must be drank with a cigar outside and now, or a drumming circle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we're seeing like, no, I mean, I am me, I'm a bourbon drinker. My mother is a bourbon drinker. My grandmother was a bourbon drinker. You know, I go back three generations of women who love to drink bourbon. So, you know, how is the wine world really here in the U.S. um, trying to break through that ceiling? Hmm, That's a tough one. Um, And being on the writing side of things, you know, I'm mostly observing when it comes to issues like this and uh, critiquing or analyzing. I'm not working inside the industry from a producer point of view. So I don't have all the answers, but I think the more there are women in senior positions in your companies, the more that mindset will pervade the marketing process and the more we'll see it in the market. You know, you've got to have, I mean, in my industry, wine writing, it's still mostly men. Nothing wrong with men, (laughs) but it is a certain often background and point of view, especially if they come from are of a certain age, a certain uh, race and so on. And it's only when you promote more women, not just whatever tokenized women to senior positions in marketing and sales and production in these companies that I think it's going to trickle down into how wine is made and marketed. I love that you said that because as soon as Bridget said how, I'm like, it's going to take us. We have to do it, you know, and, um, (laughs) and others like you. Mm -hmm. And it's just that you have to bring awareness to it. We can't just say, okay, it's the same. It's, it's always been for the last 20, 30 years. And we're just going to go with the flow. We need to say, Hey, how about we do it this way? Or even better, why don't we throw our own collector's club for women, you know? And it's like, why haven't we done that? And, and I just joined, a an organization called Chief. And I don't know if you've heard of them, but it is a private network for executive women. And it was started with two women about, and it's a startup. Um, They've been definitely investors involved, some big high profile investors, Madeleine Albright, um, Mm -hmm. Venus Williams, some, some big people, but it's really about a network of once women get to the top, how do we keep them there and have them continue to grow? Yes. Not just get that one leadership position and say, okay, I, I've made it. I should just hold on. And, you know, it's, it's how do we continue to grow that? And you just brought up a great idea. I'm like, one of the things I can offer is a really nice, exclusive, high end, some of the best wines and, and have a tasting yes. and show them yes. how to collect wine. You know, we'll, we'll invite you. you you can oh, help yeah, lead please. 
Absolutely. I'd love to. And, you know, that that brings to mind uh, two things. Madeleine Albright's quote that you probably know, but she says there's a special place in hell for women who don't support each other. That's one. But also, you know, I guess what I've done in my own industry, my writing is I've um, taken younger women and actually transitioned them into some of my um, columns and TV spots. So I talked with editors and said, look, I know I've been doing this column for you for years, but I, I don't need all of these columns. Will you give her a chance? I'll edit her work. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the only way is like to actually put someone there because I think sometimes even if they pitch themselves, either they're not, they don't know how to do it or the editor doesn't know them or the, mm-hmm. you know, the television producer. And I think that's, that's all you can do is-, it is- yeah. It is so important. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's, men do it to each other all yes. the time for exactly. each other, right? Like, yes. hey, so-and-so is a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's great. You know, or, or give him yeah. a chance, you know, or he knows nothing, but give him a chance. Okay. No problem. You know, so exactly. we need to do that more often. And it does take giving that recommendation. Hey, you know, I worked mm-hmm. with Natalie. She's, you know, and, and different people. And, and I think that I know Bridget and I do that and, and we have, we're very lucky, um, within our organization, our industries, we do have a lot of champions and, you know, but, and we do champion others, but there's still so much more to do. Absolutely. And, And, you know, I, I don't buy the argument. There are not enough qualified women or women aren't interested. There are (laughs) look at the graduation rates, even look post babies. There are lots of qualified women. I think there's um, an inherent bias that men don't even realize. You hire someone who's like you because that's what makes you more most comfortable. Those are the people who make you comfortable. They're like you. They have your background. They have to share the same jokes. That's what we need to get over. Unconscious bias of hiring somebody like me because, as you say, Julie is a good guy or known him forever or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and we have to continue to do that until you know unconscious bias is um, lessened. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know Absolutely. that it'll ever go away, but so it's lesson. We've heard all kinds of BS. Um, I have over the course of my career, everything from well, women just don't raise their hand and step in the room and ask the questions to leadership. That's a bunch of crap. It is. Um, it is. So it's, and both it's gender just, and race. I think gender it's and race. We don't yeah. see enough women of color yeah. in the industry as well. So it is like Julie said, it's on us. Mm-hmm. you know, to find those allies and to continue to, to push those doors. Or as a lot of my friends say, um, in the industry, just to kind of burn the table down and rebuild it. So <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, right? absolutely. Get a little aggressive with it. This is why it's so refreshing to talk to someone unlike yourself, who's a true trailblazer on the wine side. My God, (laughs) with your your podcast and your books and and all of these wonderful things that you're putting out there. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your memoir? Do you have a release date? Do you know when that's coming out? Um, I, I can't wait to, um, to purchase it. And I'm, and I know I've said this before just to a couple of our guests, but hopefully they'll make like a Netflix special about you and we can watch the hell out of it. (laughs) That's so sweet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. My favorite Netflix, um, show recently was the queen's gambit where she comes from nothing and then chess grandmaster and walks into a room of men. I love men, by the way, let me just clarify, I have many supportive men in my life, in the industry and so on. But there, there is a story there. Um, so the publishing industry, especially with uh, the pandemic, now paper shortages, all kinds of things going on, um, is on a two-year timeline for publishing. So it used to be a year. 
And people found that incredibly slow. Now we're on a two year. So it's two years out. So I'm, I'm talking about it because I, I want to share the issues that are in there um, well in advance, because I think I, I don't want to wait till it comes out to actually be a voice for these kinds of issues. So it's, it's, it's centered on the, my most terrible vintage uh, that began with um, my divorce, which was a surprise to me. Um, 20 years I was married and uh, uh, typical playbook. Um, there was a younger woman and it ended um, with kind of a professional meltdown on social media. Um, and I dig into why that happened. But the, the two issues are not separate. There are lots of underlying themes um, from some of the issues we've discussed, but also some of the things that I discovered about myself that I think will resonate with other women and men. So the need for perfectionism, the need, the, the competitiveness, the drive, drive, drive. And, you know, it, it's, a, as I said, it's about losing and finding love again. And it's about losing your identity so you can find your voice, your true voice, who you are without editing out the nasty bits, without presenting, you know, little Miss Perfect, nobody is. And uh, I think, again, that's, we relate to that sort of humanity of the full spectrum of a person. Um, so I'm trying to do all of that in this and we'll see how it goes. That just sounds so wonderful. I think more than ever now, and, and that's what we really try to do on this podcast. So we appreciate you being so open and, and vulnerable because people want to see the real deal. They want to hear the real story. They want to know your story and it becomes mm -hmm. deeply personal. And, um, but that's where, that's where that magic is. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it's really important more than ever to really just share that and, and, you know, and other people can relate and then that helps them through a tough time that maybe they haven't gone through or that they're just starting to go through. Um, exactly. Exactly. I don't think any of us can relate with perfection or the appearance of perfection mm -hmm. on certain social media channels. Yeah. Um, but what we identify or when I read a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I'm zeroing in on what was, you know, the flaws. Yeah. You know, or the suffering, like, yeah, the suffering and the flaws, mm -hmm. because that's where it gets me. It's like, oh, I, I remember that time. Now, how did they overcome it? You know, it's the flossum, I, I like to say, it's the flossum in all of us that makes us relatable. It, it is not the, oh, I got a hundred on my test or I won this writing award. Well, you know, good for you. Like no one <laughs> can relate to yeah. that. It's like, how did you struggle with your own perfectionism or competitiveness or whatever it was? Uh, because I struggle too. I love that, Bridget. That reminds me of a side conversation we were just having when we talk about influencers and stuff, you know, yeah, the more you're real and relatable and, you know, what were your challenges and how you overcame it, that's what's really going to resonate with people. And as women leaders in the industry, it's up to us to be vulnerable and to put that out there so that the next one's coming up. No. Okay. She struggled. It wasn't easy. It was hard. And I could do it too. You know, exactly, exactly, Julie, you know, and as a woman who's now a 20 year veteran, I feel I can do that and not take the career hit because I've done what I mean. I just, as I say, you, you can't kill me twice. Um, whereas I think younger women justifiably are more afraid of the impacts on their career about talking about certain things or whatever. So I think it's especially on senior women, the, the onus is especially on women who are veterans to, to be open. Because um, 
frankly, we have less to lose after, after you lose it all and then come back again. You know, it's, I think it's part of the responsibility of uh, being in the, in the industry these days. Absolutely. Before we start to wrap up, because I feel like we've just got on a whole nother thing and we can go into it. Maybe that'll be a podcast for next time, but um, tell our listeners what you are offering them um, for an opportunity to check out your books. Sure. Absolutely. So I have a ultimate guide to food and wine pairing that is free. And if they go to my website, nataliemcleancom forward slash served up in honor of your podcast, they can download that. There's all kinds of pairings and different iterations, all types of wine. And then from that, from the people who go to that link and download the free guide, I will choose two winners to get um, personally signed copies of Red, White, and Drunk All Over and Unquenchable. So um, I hope uh, your listeners will find the guide useful and some of them um, might be interested in reading the books as well. Awesome. I will find the guide useful and I'm sure Bridget will too. I will. All right. Great. Yes, absolutely. Well, Natalie, you know, on behalf of Served Up, Julie, myself, just want to thank you for sharing this space with us this morning, um, for just being so very open about your journey and about your passion. That's not such an easy thing to do all the time. And we appreciate your insights and we really appreciate you being just a bold leader. So thank, thank you, you for oh, everything wow. that you do. Thank you so much, and, Bridget. Oh, yes. Julie, this has been wonderful. I love this discussion. When you yeah. said it was unscripted, I thought, where are we going to go? But I, everywhere. I, thank you. <laughs> we go everywhere. This was fun. We yes. have to do it in person with wine Please. next time. A hundred percent. We've got many things that we need to do together. And, and number one, most importantly, is have wine and taste wine together. We look forward to uh, many more. And, and where remind us, where do you live in Canada? I'm based in Ottawa, Ontario, but okay. um, I live online. So a lot yes. of my students come from the United States, but also around the world, um, of course, Canada. But uh, these days, it's a global village. It, it sure is. is. My goodness, it sure is. Well, we want to wish you just some great health during this time that we live in and always. Thank you. And a whole lot of peace in your life. Oh. So thank you. And cheers to you. Oh, thank, thank you. you, Bridget, Julie. I raise my glass, my virtual glass right now to you both. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!